This is Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. We are transfixed in the global accident. After drought and fires come flooding rains, record tornadoes, and dust bowl sandstorms over the plains in December. At the same time, a tidal wave of a novel virus is sweeping the world. How can we cope and continue? Eco-minister Michael Dowd shares post-doom conversation. Then to hidden climate threats. New science finds there will be more rain than snow in the Arctic decades earlier. Hard to believe. And a new feedback loop emerges. From the University of Manitoba, our guest is lead author Dr. Michelle McChrystal. Let's get going. After strange and violent weather and two years of pandemic just getting worse, maybe it's time to ask, do we still have a prayer? Michael Dowd is an ordained minister who marries science and belief. Dowd and his wife, author Connie Barlow, travel from community to community, spreading a gospel of ecology. They host interviews, Zoom conversations on post-doom, and over 175 YouTube videos. Dowd's latest video, Collapse in a Nutshell, garnered well over 125,000 views. Michael Dowd, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Thank you, Alex. It's great to be with you. Well, our audience comes mostly to hear climate scientists, but science doesn't tell us how to bear this horrible stress of the times. So how can you help us? Well, that's a great question. Yeah, when science is doing its job, it helps us understand reality. And when religion is doing its job, it helps us relate to reality in a healthy way. Unfortunately, uh, religion has not been doing that very effectively. Just to be clear, I don't marry or integrate science and belief. I'm, I'm about science and trust, or science and faith, faith as trust. But I'm, I'm a religious naturalist. I have no supernatural or otherworldly beliefs at all. Uh, and I ground everything that I do in a science-based worldview. In fact, I'd say my creed in a nutshell, my credo, I call it my eco-theo credo, is reality is my God, Evidence is my scripture. The epic of evolution is my creation story. Ecology is my theology. Integrity is my spiritual path. And promoting accountability to the future is my mission. So that's where I'm coming from. And yes, my, my role these days, it's mostly in this post-doom world. I've had um, about 80 conversations and the resource page on the postdoom.com website. And it's really designed to help people understand what's real, like what's really unfolding and why, so that basically confusion is replaced with clarity, because when they understand things like the ecological worldview and the rise and fall of civilizations, then it becomes obvious that, oh, yeah, we're, we're in a classic collapse pattern of civilizations that we have a lot of evidence for. And so clarity typically replaces confusion. And compassion usually replaces the blame game. It's so easy. If you don't understand why things are unfolding, why things are unraveling, and if you don't understand biospheric collapse, for example, then it's so easy to just blame and blame and blame. And so clarity replaces confusion. Compassion replaces the blame. And basically, I encourage people to follow their hearts. Where does love motivate you to be in action? I prefer love and action to activism. So, yeah, that's this sort of post-doom world is, is what my life is about these days. 
We all want to hear how to save this civilization from heartbreaking mass death and collapse. Is it too late for that? It is actually, yes. Um, we, we know of over 100 civilizations, and civilization itself, city-based agricultural civilizations, are always unsustainable. We have no counterexamples throughout all of human history. Civilizations predictably do themselves in human-centered civilizations. There have been a few, and there are a few indigenous, you could call them civilizations, that are based on ecological principles, like the Kogi Indians uh, in South America, in Colombia, for example. But it, those are rare. Uh, certainly most of us, when we think of civilization, we think of, you know, uh, human-centered, uh, agricultural, city-based civilizations, which reliably, predictably, inevitably overshoot their carrying capacity. And then so you see rise and fall or boom and bust or progress and regress. So, yeah, there's, there's no saving industrial civilization. What William Catton, my great intellectual mentor, wrote in his book, Overshoot, The Ecological Basis of Revolutionary Change, he called industrial civilization homo colossus, where each of us in industrial civilization uses, you know, 20 to 30 times the resources and exudes 20 to 30 times the waste of normal homo sapiens. And homo colossus is destined for extinction. That may or may not mean the extinction of Homo sapiens. We just don't know. But it certainly is a possibility. You know, my father became an ardent Christian late in life, and he collected all the bad news, as I did, but he was trying to prove we are entering the end times. Michael, how do we know you and I are not re-stimulating the Christian story of the apocalypse? Wow, great question. I don't know about re-stimulating. I mean, we certainly are in... The end, the real end times, not the mythic end times, the way that people reading the Bible or Book of Revelation think about it. But we are at the end of this way of living, this set of living arrangements, where we think it's all about us, and so we measure progress and success and well-being and wealth in human-centered terms, which is always ecocidal. The only sustainable, truly sustainable, genuinely pro-future cultures measured wealth and well-being in life-centered terms. How well is the soil doing decade by decade? How well are the forests doing decade by decade? What about the other species decade by decade? In other words, life-centered or ecocentric measures of wealth and well-being are the only thing that's sustainable, and industrial civilization is the exact opposite of that. We measure wealth and well-being in terms of the wealth of individuals or corporations or nation-states or GDP or GNP or whatever. This is insane. It's unsustainable, and it's, that's why it's collapsing. In your popular video, you do cite those 80 examples of human civilizations during the last 8,000 years that appear to accelerate and then collapse. Maybe that's just the kind of animals we are. We build these fantastic nests, and they fall apart. Is that it? Well, not quite. I mean, one of the things that those of us that are part of settler colonial cultures mistakenly believe that humans are always like this. We're always ecocidal. We're just the ecocidal ape. You know, we're, we're, but, but, but when you actually look at the history of humanity, like even going back, say, you know, two million years to Homo habilis, and you look throughout, 95% of human history, we lived more or less sustainable. That is, we lived in place without destroying the place. And what that requires is valuing what we would today call in secular language the biosphere or the ecosphere, as primary reality. We're, we're derivative. We're derivative reality. We're, we're, we're dependent. Primary reality is everything inside us, 
like our microbiome, and everything outside us, like the trees and the forests and the climate and everything else, that we don't exist without. And so treating primary reality as primary, as a greater thou, not a lesser it, treating the living world, the land, as a greater thou, not a lesser it, is the essence of sustainability. And cultures have done that for thousands and thousands and thousands of years, except that once civilizations were able to mine metals and then compete with each other with this domination mindset. There was a famous book uh, written by Andy Schmuckler called The Parable of the Tribes, which covers this. And it, it puts us on sort of an evolutionary arms race to the kind of world that we now have where we're actually doing ourselves in. Yes, you say, quote, only by assuming the worst and acting accordingly do we have any real chance of avoiding the worst. End quote. And every scientific study carries a range of probabilities and possibilities. Uh, but I would think if we have limited resources, and, and we do, and we pour everything into the worst-case scenario, maybe we miss opportunities on pathways that were not so extreme. How do you see it? Yeah, uh, one of the things that a lot of us don't know because human nature is to, is to not – is to deny – what's really painful or what's really scary or what, you know, uh, the, the, there are ways of thinking about reality that our brains don't do very well. So denial is a very deeply rooted mechanism, a, a, a pathway that's pretty instinctual for most of us. And so most people are not aware of, for example, tipping points, self-reinforcing, cascading tipping points that are not possibly in front of us. It's not a matter of we're at risk of passing these. We've already passed them. They're well in the rearview mirror. There are at least a dozen. Guy McPherson actually thinks there's like 65 tipping points that we've already passed. I don't know about that, but I do know for a fact that there's at least a dozen that are already, they're already behind us. It's like we've run over the dog and there's no going back. And so it doesn't matter what we do. These things are already in runaway mode. For example, the coral reefs, they're lost. There's nothing we can do to stop the loss of the coral reefs. There's nothing we can do to stop the uh, shrinking of the ice really all over the world, the loss of ice all over the world. In fact, I sometimes tell people, if you only read one book on climate change, make it Dar Jamel's The End of Ice, because he gets it, as does Peter Wadhams, that we are, this is a cascading, this is runaway, it's out of our control. Um, the forests of the world, if we could somehow miraculously stop all of our emissions Carbon dioxide and nitrous oxide and methane would continue to rise every year because the forests of the world are already in the process of what could be called the great conflagration, which is that every year there's going to be bigger fires, more intense fires, hotter fires, and more widespread. And this is in the Canadian boreal forest, the Siberian boreal forest, California, Australia. Even the Amazon is no longer a carbon sink. It doesn't absorb it actually emits more carbon and other greenhouse gases than it stores. So these are already in runaway mode. So that's why, to my mind, the two things that we really are morally obligated to do, because the likelihood of at least you know, 70 to 90% of our species dying in the next, say, 20 years due to a multi-breadbasket failure where three or more or two or more of the five grain-growing regions of the world fail, you're looking at a billion to four billion people dying within 14 months. And so with that, we're, we're, we're in a situation where if we assume we have everlasting life, that civilization is, is everlasting, it's got eternal life, well, then we're not going to do the two things that we, in my mind, have to do to avoid being evil on a geological timescale. 
One of them is to cap the nukes, to get the fuel rods out of the swimming pools, the spent fuel rods, because, uh, you know, if civilization collapses fast or if we assume that it's going to keep going so we, we don't do what we need to do to, to ensure as few nuclear meltdowns as possible, then we'll have probably dozens. There's 440 nuclear power plants in the world. So doing everything we can to ensure as little geological scale toxicity Again, that's a life center. That's not human center. That's saying even if we go extinct, there are things that we can do in the next 20 or 30 years to help avoid the worst catastrophe in terms of toxicity, nuclear and other. The other is assisting trees and plants. I mean, plants and trees and shrubs, the green world, don't have legs. So assisting trees and migrating is holy, holy work, even if we go extinct in the next 20 or 30 years, which is absolutely a possibility. I mean, there was a major book that came out last year called The Journeys of Trees by Zach St. George. It was published by W.W. W. Norton, top publisher. And it features my wife, Connie, Connie Barlow, from the very first sentence throughout the book because she's one of the main point people in North America for assisting trees and migrating faster than any other animal can move their plants. It's, it's what the indigenous Robin Wall Kimmerer calls helping forests walk. I love that, helping forests walk. Well, this is fantastic information, and I think people have worried about human migration and and the uh, hordes from the tropics are going to arrive in the United States or something after being burned out by American fossil fuel emissions and Chinese and European, etc. But now we're talking about the migration of the animals and the plants and our responsibility to help them survive what we've done. Amen. To use a religious word, I mean, yes, I think that anything that we can do to help any other species to pass through this bottleneck. I mean, we are, we, are in a, we are in a mass extinction. We are quite possibly on the list. I mean, if we see a four degree Celsius average, you know, above 1750 baseline, if we see four degrees or more, it's quite likely that no mammal larger than a small burrowing animal will survive. So we, we don't survive in that kind of world. So that doesn't mean that we just say, well, there's nothing we can do. No, just because we can't save everything doesn't mean there's not a ton that we can do. Certainly helping other species survive this bottleneck, helping them to migrate, ensuring as little nuclear toxicity and other kinds of toxicity, and basically anything that we can do to participate with the regenerative, restorative, natural processes of this divine biosphere. It's, you know, building topsoil, um, restoring ecosystems. These are things that we actually have in our power to do, even if we can't uh, save the world, as it were. While I totally agree with you, I want to note for you and for listeners, I don't really think that near-term human extinction is, is likely. I think humans are like glaciers. We may eventually melt away under the heat, but that could take thousands of years. And I've interviewed a couple of hundred, uh, several hundred scientists, and only a couple would agree with near-term human extinction. So there's a bit of a dividing line there in the green community, I would say, on, on where we stand on that spectrum. I think you're right, but I think that that stems from a radical misunderstanding of, A, civilizations. Civilizations are heat engines, whether they're powered by uh, solar and wind or whether they're powered by fossil fuels, they're a heat engine, and that's unavoidable. And when you understand technology and the history of technology, you know, starting with fire or you know, spears, any human-centered technology, that is, any technology that benefits humans, but doesn't become food for other creatures at its, at, at, you know, at its end, 
for example. Any, any human technology that doesn't mimic the wisdom of the natural world's technology, Gaia's technology, always creates more problems than it solves. It just does it over time. So most of the scientists you've spoken to, and I've actually listened to a lot of your interviews, these are scientists and, and others who still have faith that, that human ingenuity and technology and the market can somehow do what needs to be done. And no, it turns out that human ingenuity, technology, and the market are what got us into this mess in the first place. So they're the last things that are going to be helpful moving forward. So that's why what I've studied the last eight years is the rise and fall of civilizations and understanding the, the dynamics, the common patterns of contraction and collapse, but also understanding the radical difference between genuinely sustainable cultures, pro-future cultures, in, you know, indigenuity, indigeneity, where you have a native or indigenous heart and mind and values. The difference between that kind of a worldview and those kinds of cultures and human-centered, anthropocentric, civilizations which always do themselves in and ours is a profound example of anthropocentrism so i actually think that that uh, there's probably at least a a 50 percent chance that everybody listening to this um will probably perish in the next 20 years and that's not i'm not being sensationalist i'm not i'm not trying to be a you know doomer i'm my whole life is about post doom like being inspired, but not being inspired by thinking that technology and the market are going to save us. They're not. Technology actually exacerbates overshoot, ecological overshoot. That's the fundamental issue is ecological overshoot, and we are profoundly in that. And just like every species that has ever gone into ecological overshoot, die off, a profound dieback of somewhere between 60 and 95% of the population is inevitable. So whether any humans survive, say, for example, this century you know, 7,000 pockets of humans, 100 to 300 humans in different outposts, habitable outputs of the planet, or whether we go extinct, I don't think we can know that. But certainly there will be a major dieback of humans literally in the next probably two decades would be my guess. And I say that with a broken heart because I live two blocks from my year-and-a-half-old granddaughter. Check out the Radio EcoShock website. We're at ecoshock.org. You are listening to Radio EcoShock. I'm your host, Alex Smith. Our guest is eco-minister and multimedia communicator, Michael Dowd. As you say, you have a website devoted to post-doom conversations. What is post-doom, and what kind of talk is going on there? Yeah, thanks for the question. Yeah, About, uh, about two years ago, um, Connie and I started this post-Doom project, and, and it really came about, actually, uh, we were in Ottawa, Canada, and I had done an evening program at a large uh, Anglican cathedral, and Paul Chaferka came to my presentation, and the next day, Paul Chaferka, Paul Beckwith, and Connie and I ended up spending, I don't know, four or five hours with each other. And that's where this, this idea of a post-Doom conversation series came from. And what I mean by that, I actually have, for about a year, I spent time trying out different definitions with colleagues and stuff like that. And so what we've honed in on is three definitions of doom and three definitions of post-doom. And they're just right there on the postdoom.com website. I just want to read them. They're real short. Doom. A common feeling of ug or dread upon realizing that technological progress and economic growth and development are the root of our predicament, not our way out. Doom is a name for the anxiety and fear called forth when living in a coronavirus era that triggers an economic depression. And doom is the midpoint between denial 
and regeneration, with or without us. I mean, many people don't allow themselves to feel doom because they think it's the end point. They think they're going to stay in despair the rest of their lives. Well, our brains don't allow us to do that. Most, most people, our brains won't allow us to do that. So I see doom as the midpoint between denial and regeneration. That's what life does. It regenerates. It's, I call it compost theology. Earth will regenerate even if we go extinct. Life will regenerate. So that's, that's doom. So the three definitions of post-doom. Post-doom. What opens up when we remember who we are, accept the inevitable, honor our grief, and prioritize what is pro-future and soul-nourishing. Post-doom is a fierce and fearless reverence for life and relative equanimity, even in the midst of abrupt climate change, a global pandemic, and collapse of both the health of the biosphere and business as usual. And post-doom is living meaningfully, compassionately, and courageously, no matter what. So yes, this is my, my, my ministry, to use that language, is really in this post-doom world. I'm, I have discussions twice a week. The resources, I'm always adding the best of the best, like the cream of the crop in terms of video, audio resources uh, in this field of climate change, abrupt climate change, uh, um, the rise and fall of civilizations, the ecological paradigm, and that sort of thing. And then uh, these conversations are just phenomenal. I mean, I've had 80 conversations with literally some of the top people in the world who get the big picture, including the scariest of the scary stuff, who've done the heart work, done the grief work, and then come through to a place of inspired local action and what I'm calling love and action. Secretly, a lot of people think humans deserve the fires, storms, and pandemic <laughs> because, because we have sinned against nature and all those glorious forms of life. What do you think? Well, I think that that's certainly one way of thinking about it, and, um, you know, it, the case could easily be made. Uh, certainly anthropocentric, human-centered civilization, I, I honestly see it. I'm, I'm going to use religious language for a moment, uh, but I'm, I promise you and your listeners I'm doing it in a, in a naturalistic way. I see the fundamental problem, why we've gotten into this mess, why we're rapidly destroying life on Earth and why we've created this sixth mass extinction and quite possibly we're on the list, is idolatry, but not idolatry has anything to do with beliefs. It's not believing in the wrong God. It's not bowing to statues. It's human-centeredness rather than life-centeredness. Ecocentrism, life-centeredness, is the only thing that's sustainable. Human-centeredness is always unsustainable. Again, I don't know of any examples in human history but most people have never learned this. They don't learn it in schools, whatever. Or, it's, so A, it seems to me that the two most ecocidal perspectives relating to God, one is that God is supernatural only, that God is merely supernatural, or that God doesn't exist. Because, as Paul Tillich reminded us, your God is your ultimate concern. Whatever you put your faith or trust in, your ultimate commitment, your ultimate concern, that's your God. So if technology or the market is what you put your faith in, well, that's your God. And these are false gods. Progress is a false god. So I see idolatry, not idolatry as beliefs, but idolatry as human centeredness, as really the fundamental cause of the predicament that we're in. And we are definitely in a predicament. We're not, it's not a problem that can be solved. It's a predicament that we have to adapt to and live with and possibly die with. We both know there's anger brewing out there on many sides. It's in the chat groups, in the comments, uh, it's in the streets. Nothing good gets done with anger. And I like your message of compassion, not just for our own weaknesses, because we all have them, but also for 
the doubt and the opposition in others, what can we win if if we have the compassion to do it? Well, that's a, that's a very interesting question. I mean, one of the post-Doom conversations that I recommend most highly is my most recent one with Joanna Macy. And we titled it To Collapse Well. And I think compassion, when we have genuine compassion, when we realize that there are already things that are out of our control, that there's nothing that we can do that can, that can slow, stop, or reverse abrupt climate change, for example, which is 10,000 years of climate change in half a human lifetime. And so when we understand that we're all in this together, that we're actually the heirs of several thousand years of human-centered politics, human-centered governance, human-centered religion, then we can lighten up and stop the blame game and just realize that, oh, we're in a, ho- we're in a, in a collective hospice situation which doesn't mean that every last human is necessarily going to die and go extinct. But what we do know is that there will be a tremendous suffering. Every season, every month, there will be, and there is now, breakdowns. Things that used to work last week, last month, last year, last decade aren't working. And we're seeing a breakdown in, in the supply chains, in, in the, you know, the chip crisis, energy. Uh, we could very well see, this is the first year, we could easily see for the first time in, what, a couple hundred years, where human population actually goes down and, will, and likely will continue to go down. And so compassion is what helps us stay human. It helps us be humane. It helps us to look for opportunities to be a blessing to others because no matter how bad things get, there are going to be people who have it worse than you. And that's where we all know all the spiritual traditions and all the, not just spiritual traditions, but any kind of healthy program of recovery whether it's addiction recovery or anything else, knows that where we find meaning, where we find joy, where we find deep satisfaction is when we can be a contribution to others, when we can support and be a blessing to others. And so that's what compassion opens up is that door because we're looking for opportunities to be a contribution, to be a blessing to others, including more than humans, you know, other species. As someone who's traveled around mostly in America for 19 years, do you think the country will hang together? Can there be an America without overconsumption and overshoot? Well, there's two questions there. No, I don't think that the United States is likely to remain the United States for more than a decade, uh, possibly sooner than that. One of my favorite authors uh, is John Michael Greer, and he wrote a book, uh, a nonfiction book a few years ago, called Decline and Fall, The End of Empire, and the future of democracy in 21st century America. And then he wrote a novel called Twilight's Last Gleaming within a year of that, which is like a fictional portrayal of pretty much the same material. And in that fictional portrayal, he sees the United States, or he outlined the United States as really coming apart and having like five regional governments. By 2025, he thought that that would happen. I don't know about the time scale or the timeline, but what I do know is that it's almost impossible to have a continental-scale governance without fossil fuels. And we're now on the downside. We're on the we're post, you know, Hubbard's peak. We're post-peak oil and peak everything. And so I think that we're likely to see the United States divide up into several uh, regional uh, governances, not in the next year or two, but probably in the next five to ten years. You're listening to EcoShock Radio for the world. I'm Alex Smith. Get it all at our website, ecoshock.org. You are listening to Radio EcoShock. I'm your host, Alex Smith. Our guest is eco-minister and 
multimedia communicator Michael Dowd. You meet so many interesting people. You're almost like a LinkedIn for cresting waves of new thought, I think. I wonder, though, can the old religions escape the trap of sexual inequality? We know that Judaism and and, uh, Islam and Christianity are organized on male domination. And uh, building on that, are we going to try and bring back those shapes of the older religions? I just wonder how you translate between these different languages when you go out and meet with congregations in different parts of the country? Yeah, uh, interesting question. Well, first of all, the way that Connie and I lived for 19 years, we settled a year ago, we settled in Ypsilanti, Michigan, so that we could live near family, granddaughter. But um, for 19 years, we traveled North America. We came to Canada six times, most you know, most of the time in the United States. I've spoken to about 3,000 groups over the last 19 years, and uh, you know, all different kinds, secular groups, Christian groups, Unitarian Universalists, all different kinds of religious, including, you know, occasionally a Buddhist meditation center, or Hindu ashram or whatever, but also colleges and universities. And so I've had the opportunity to speak to thousands, tens of thousands of people at the intersection, because everything I do is at the intersection of science, inspiration, and deep sustainability, um, genuine sustainability. And so I, I draw a distinction between ecocentric, life-centered, <laughs> what I started doing is, is spelling the word God, G, earth emoji, D. So you've got the earth as the O, because immediately, visually, you know that you're not talking about something supernatural here. You're talking about you know, reality with a personality. So for me, a God-centered or ecocentric or eco-theo worldview is one where religion is about our relationship to reality. It's not primarily about otherworldism. So Teddy Goldsmith, uh, who was the, Edward Goldsmith, was the founder and the senior editor of The Ecologist magazine for close to 40 years. And he wrote several amazing books. One of them, The the Blueprint for Survival in the early 70s, was one of the top, still to this day, is one of the top-selling environmental books of all time. But his two ones that are relevant to this conversation is The Stable Society, and what he means by stable is sustainable, genuinely sustainable, and The Way, an ecological worldview, which is his magnum opus. And those two books, The Stable Society and The Way, an ecological worldview, are based on 500 years of anthropological evidence of what's the difference, what's our best scientific understanding, anthropological understanding, historical understanding of the difference between religion, for example, and and life ways in indigenous cultures, and in human-centered cultures. And he actually defined religion as the control mechanism of stable, sustainable cultures. And what he means by mechanism is that aspect of society that speaks with moral authority that the future will not be compromised by the present. However, in unsustainable civilizations, religion can't be the control mechanism. Religion in in all the cultures of the last, say, 3,000 years... Uh, the last 2,500 years being the you know, axial religions. These are, these are all religions that emerged in societies and civilizations that were already radically unsustainable. There was no way that Buddhism or Hinduism or Islam or Christianity or Judaism was going to be able to uh, uh, insist that the future was not compromised by the present. It wasn't able to have that kind of control over the political and elites and the, and the economic forces. And so religion in unsustainable civilizations downgrades It's not the control mechanism. It's not that aspect of society that insists 
on accountability of the future. Rather, it's a, contr- it, it, it's a coping mechanism. Religion becomes pretty much a coping mechanism. It helps people to have good lives, healthy relationships, and die peacefully and leave a good legacy in the midst of a culture, that, a civilization that's actually in the boom and bust cycle. It's, it's, it's an unsustainable civilization. So my focus is really, I do, coming back to your question, I think we're beginning to see already small groups of people in all the great religions, all of the major religions, beginning to deeply embrace a more ecological and evolutionary understanding. But it's too late. That's not going to save the world, but it does do magic in the hearts of the, of the, the faithful of those various faiths. And whether, whether these patriarchal religions uh, you know, will be able to really do the moral right thing, which is to not have this domination relationship to nature or women, I doubt. I, 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 don't, I, don't, I mean, that certainly is happening in pockets, but I don't see it becoming widespread, certainly not in time to avoid you know, the consequences of several thousand years of living unsustainably. As we start to ramp up here, I would like to picture listeners who are stuck at home because of the pandemic. They may feel despair and distress, uh, or they may be in their cars because they have to go to work. There's no choice. They've got to pay the bills. So for those millions of people, what can we do? Well, first of all, I think it's the, the two things that most people that I've, I mean, again, my, my wife these days is helping to introduce people to this historical, ecological evolutionary understanding. So that's why the two videos at the top of the resource page of my Postum website, Collapse in a Nutshell and Overshoot in a Nutshell, those, they're each a half hour long. And th- those two videos are really the essence. I mean, if, if somebody wants to really understand our predicament and why we're in the mess we are, how we got here, and why so many things are unavoidable now, those are really the two best videos. But then beyond that, these 80 conversations people can listen to and find deep inspiration and the resources on the resource page. And then twice a week, every Wednesday night at 8.30 p.m. Eastern time, and then on Saturday at 1 o'clock in the afternoon Eastern time, I have a Zoom call, which is I call post-doom, no-gloom Zoom calls. And we have between 20 and 35 people for each of those calls, and people are able, it's a safe place for people to share their anguish, their fear, their anger, their depression, their grief, because grief is so important. We have to feel the grief, otherwise we bottle up and it just drives us crazy. As Joanna Macy says, the measure of your grief is the measure of your love. You wouldn't be feeling grief if you didn't love. So these post do no gloom calls are a way where we can be among, because many people don't have, sometimes their spouses even in a different perspective. And so even, you know, even family members. So this is where you can find a community of people that understand these large-scale challenges and predicament, understand why we're in this and what's, what's still possible and what's not possible going forward, and then really to support each other and share best practices, you know, share various healthy coping mechanisms, because, you know, all of us develop, or most of us develop patterns as teenagers of dealing with pain or sadness or anger or grief, or whatever. And some of those coping mechanisms are healthy and some of them aren't. And so, you know, we're seeing, as Plato noted, as civilizations collapse, and he only knew about a few, but as civilizations contract over many, many decades, addictions of all kinds ramp up. And that's what we're seeing now. So that's why these post-doom, no-gloom calls are really a way that, people can congregate, as it were, like on Zoom, 
but really share with a community of, of like-minded, like-hearted people. And we don't all have the same perspective. We value our differences. But nonetheless, it's, it's a place where we can feel emotionally supported. I, one of the better videos that a lot of people have watched that are part of that conversation is called The New Serenity Prayer. Emotional support for climate anxiety and environmental dread. And, you know, most of us are familiar with the serenity prayer, God, life, reality. Give me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change and the courage to change the things I can and the wisdom to know the difference. And so accepting what would, at a climate level, at a civilizational collapse level, what, what are the things that we, that we really are going to be frustrated if we don't accept them because they're literally inevitable? to accept those things, but then to find those places where we can make a difference, where we can have compassionate, generous love and action and make a real difference. And it's usually locally. And so that's what I would encourage folks to do. Explore the post-doom conversations, explore the post-doom resources, and definitely join us on one or more of these post-doom no gloom calls. It's, it's on the discussion page of, our, of the post-doom website. And people can also go to michaeldowd.org, and that last name is spelled D-O-W-D. I'm Alex Smith, and Michael, thank you so much for visiting with us on Radio EcoShock. Thank you, Alex. Thank you for the, your great work. This is, it's a treat for, to be with you. Covering the world, this is Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. The Arctic is a land of ice and snow. Except with climate change, that is tipping towards more rain than snow. This is a shocking development with very big impacts, and of course, it is coming faster than anyone expected. Younger listeners may live to see the new wetter Arctic. Michelle McChrystal is a Canadian postdoctoral research fellow. She is with the Centre for Earth Observation Science at the University of Manitoba. From Winnipeg, Canada, Michelle McChrystal, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Yes, thank you for having me. To begin, why should the rest of us care whether it rains or snows in the Arctic? <laughs> that's, that's a very good question. And I suppose it's a very potent one because, yeah, as you said, like the Arctic is, is so far removed from so many different people. But the Arctic has a huge impact on, on global climate, always has done. So in the first instance, in terms of how the Arctic is important in the general scale, is that with it having a large snow covering, that has a high albedo, which basically means that a lot of the sunlight and solar radiation is reflected away from the Earth, so it kind of acts like a, a global cooling mechanism. So it's very, very important in that sense in terms of like keeping, you know, a relatively, hopefully, cooler climate. But the, the fact that it's changing a lot more rapidly is going to impact that in quite a very substantial way. But in terms of what we have found and what we have studied in the paper and the work that I've been doing this last few years is that, as we know, the Arctic, as I said, is, co is covered in snow and ice, but... With climate change, the snow is not going to be the dominant form of precipitation. In fact, it's going to change quite rapidly to rainfall. And some parts of the Arctic are already have experienced that change, this transition, as we describe in the paper, to a rainfall-dominated precipitation. And that has huge implications, one, for what I was saying about the fact that if you've got more rain and less snow, there'll be less snow cover, so it'll have an impact on the, on the albedo of the Earth. But also it has other ramifications. So one of the things that we one of the kind of motivating factors for the work that we have done was to look at how rain and this rain on these rain on snow events. So when we have snow cover and when there's an instance of rain followed by freezing temperatures, what that kind of means. So it can create ice layers within the snowpack. Um, so either like at the top of the snowpack or within the snowpack, uh, anywhere across the Arctic. 
And that has quite serious implications for local people in the Arctic. So, for example, reindeer herders and communities that depend upon reindeers and caribou and and animals like that, you know, for their substance. Because the animals themselves, they can't actually make it through the snowpack or find it very difficult or expend a lot of energy to get through the snowpack, to get to be able to forage, to be able to survive. So you have a lot of these die-off events, a lot of starvation in these animals, which leads them to, like, this mass die-off events, as I said. Not only that, it has global implications as well in that one instance is for the permafrost, for example. When we get more rain on on these lands, it can cause the permafrost to to warm up or um, the land, sorry, to warm up and cause the permafrost to thaw. The permafrost basically is frozen soil. And within that, you have a lot of carbon and other greenhouse gases, such as methane as well, that are stored within that soil. And as those areas get warmer, there's a lot more activity in the soil, so these uh, this carbon can be released, which there can exacerbate and, and can contribute to this increase in greenhouse gases, which, of course, everybody knows contributes, therefore, to global warming, to enhance global warming. And also, just another example is over Greenland. Whenever our, our results have shown that more rainfall is going to fall along the coastlines of Greenland, which is very important because that's you know your glaciers there fall into the oceans along the coastlines. And if you're getting more rain in those regions, it's going to cause a lot more glacial melt, a lot more ice instability on the Greenland ice sheet, which therefore contribute to global sea level rise as well. There's quite a number of impacts. The Arctic is actually very important in the whole sort of global, global climate system. It is indeed. So you're the lead author of the new study, New Climate Models Reveal Faster and Larger Increases in Arctic Precipitation Than Previously Projected. It was published November 30th, 2021 in the journal Nature Communications. How much sooner will this tipping point of rain versus snow come, and why is that important? In, in the paper, we've, we've talked about, um, in this research, we've talked about when this transition will, will happen, and Although we, we can't give it like a definite that's going to change on this day at this date at this time, it's because global climate is, is highly variable. But basically what we did was that there's two different data model sets that we have looked at. So one that was produced about 10 years ago and then this most recent one. So the old one is called SEMA 5 and the current one is SEMA 6. And within each of those, we have say around 30, 35 models. You take a, an, a, an analysis of all of those models for those two different data sets and do a comparison and with the older data set, this transition, so like an Arctic kind of wide transition to this rainfall dominated precipitation was due to, which in those models appear to be around 2090, 2100. But with this latest updated models, we find this transition can happen about 20 years earlier, so say around like 2070, 2080 for like an Arctic wide. Of course, that's just the entire Arctic and the Arctic itself is a very diverse area. So when we looked at it regionally, we did see, and seasonally, of course, as well, since we know, like, wintertime in the Arctic is a lot colder than the summertime. And when we look at it regionally, we see actually a lot of the changes really occur in the autumn period. And again, we can see this, like, earlier transition between about 20 or 30 years or so. For example, one example that I picked out would be the Central Arctic Ocean in autumn. In the old models, again, they said around about 2090, 2100. But these latest set of models, this latest model output is showing that to be around 2060, 2070. So again, this 20-year jump. And the fact that this is significant is the fact that, well, A, just shows that everything's becoming more rapid. These changes are becoming more rapid, which therefore means as a human society, as a global society, you know, for our animals and all these other, um, all life essentially in the Arctic has to adapt a lot quicker. We have to have 
faster mitigation strategies put in place, um, earlier uh, adaptation plans that probably haven't really been set in place or they've been talked about, but nothing's really solidified. And it's not only that, it also shows that it maybe gives a greater impetus that we need to start making changes in a much more large and rapid scale. The fact that these changes are happening earlier and, and more rapidly than we've previously thought or previously predicted is showing that the climate change is, is becoming not worse, but there's greater change happening. So therefore, we need to adapt and we need to change how we you know, fuel our society, fuel our economies, essentially, to try and limit this. You know, while we look out to the end of the century, and these are all different scenario-based, this isn't a prediction of the future in any way. This is just what could happen following a certain scenario. It doesn't mean that's what's going to happen, but it's to give a sort of guideline of this is what could happen, this could be the worst thing that could happen. So we need to make these changes. So I think it's like a kind of a call to action that the fact that things are happening and changing a lot sooner, a lot earlier than previously estimated. I gather from your paper that scientists are, are doubtful now that we can stay below 2 degrees centigrade over pre-industrial. But if we make the effort and, and stay two, maybe 2.5 degrees, will that matter when it comes to the rain-snow balance up north? So we did investigate that, as you rightly said, this idea of living within a two-degree world. And the, the Paris Accord, for example, they even went, or the Paris Agreement, but they went so far as even to try and push this to 1.5. And I think at the minute, and I'm not exactly certain on this, on the exact number, but I think it's around 1.1, 1.2 currently, current global warming levels relative to this baseline period. So yeah, a lot of scientists are doubting the fact that we'll, we'll stay with a 1.5 and we we look at that in the paper. We take these three different like global warming scenarios. So we look at a 1.5, we look at a two degree, we look at a three degree. So what would happen if we, what would happen to this transition in each of these different scenarios? And we find that within a 1.5 degree warming, a global warming limit, a lot of the Arctic, some parts will, but um, like those that are sort of closer, like in lower latitudes, around 60, 50 degrees north would be. But um, at a 1.5 degree global limit, a lot of the Arctic will remain snow dominated. At two degrees, some of it will remain snow dominated, some will become rain dominated. And at three degrees, most of it will be rain dominated. So it really does show that staying within these limits actually is very important and, and staying well below the three degree limit. So I think at the minute, with current trajectory that we are on in terms of like global warming levels, I think we're closer to the three degree level. So if we were to stay within that, within that, most of the Arctic will transition. But if we can, and as you said, most scientists are a bit sceptical of 1.5, even 2 degrees. But if we can make these push, this is why I was sort of saying earlier that it's, it's really important that the transitions, these ideas and policies that are in place to try and counteract climate change and counteract the increases in CO2 and other greenhouse gases need to be pushed a lot harder and a lot faster than what they are. Because if we're continue on this path, these transitions will happen and happen earlier than we have anticipated. I didn't realize until reading your new paper just how many big ramifications there could be just from a change in the balance of rain to snow. For example, uh, people may not realize some of the world's largest rivers drain into the Arctic Ocean. What happens when these great Arctic rivers swell and pour more water into the Arctic seas? Yeah, exactly. Um as you rightly said, with more rainfall, it's going to cause snowmelt up in the glacial region, up in the higher mountain regions. 
that's going to cause the snow to melt. You're going to have huge fluxes of fresh water into the ocean, and that will freshen the ocean. So at the minute, obviously, oceans are very saline. They've got a lot of salt water. But when you freshen that, that will have huge implications for ocean circulations and things like that. It'll obviously, it'll maybe contribute to warming of the oceans as well in that region. But also, that will bring, you know, nutrients and stuff off the land into the ocean that can have a huge change on the marine life, like the benthic community that, that live within the Arctic Ocean. It have huge implications for, yeah, all marine life, essentially, whether it's good or bad, but it will, it will definitely shift kind of ecosystem in that region. Will the increasing rains affect the Arctic sea ice and how it's doing? It will, exactly how, because with fresher waters, you can actually get an almost, I wouldn't say a regrowth of sea ice, but it allows sea ice to expand um, a little bit better than if it's just all salt water. But you're not going to have very thick ice because the fact that the ocean itself is too warm. To allow sea ice to regrow, so you'd only have very thin ice if, if you did get this more um, fresh water at the top. And usually it will be a little bit, probably be a bit warmer if it's coming off the land and will have a lot more nutrients in it, as I said. So it actually could contribute a little bit to a, a growth of the extent, not necessarily thickness, and that's what's really important is the thickness. And also if you get more rain on top of the sea ice, that can contribute to like melt ponds, that can contribute to thinning of the sea ice because it's usually warmer. That's just saying if there's already sea ice in the region and rain falls on top of it, it will impact that the dynamics there. And also, whenever you have rain on top of sea ice, it can allow um, greater solar insulation sort of that can go through into the ocean again and will impact you know the phytoplankton and the marine life as well. So it'll contribute to like a growth of growth of that phytoplankton, which will have again you know further implications for um, the marine life in the Arctic. Are there implications of the switch from snow to rain on human livelihoods in the far north? Yeah, absolutely. As I sort of mentioned earlier, um, this the impact it'll have on the reindeer herding communities and local communities that depend on that as a source of sustenance for their communities. For the, and their cultural aspect of life as well, 100%. The fact that we're already seeing a lot of these die-off events occur with reindeer and caribou across different regions all across the Arctic is showing that this already is having an impact at the minute. And as we continue into the future, when, we get, when we're seeing more rain events occur across the Arctic, it's going to really have a negative impact for those communities that, that, that depend upon that, but also as well for transport and for different infrastructure in the Arctic. If, we're, if the whole climatological system is shifting in a certain way, the current systems that they have in place now probably won't be ready for that transition they're not like adaptable to like a warmer environment to, to more rainfall and um, like ice roads for example as well to you know for transport across the arctic if you're having uh, more rainfall and less like freezing temperatures to uh, contribute to having good solid ice roads that will mean that you know transport of goods and transport of things like that across the arctic will, will definitely have to be re-examined this is Radio Ecoshock. You're listening to Michelle McChrystal from the University of Manitoba. We're talking about increasing rain instead of snow in the Arctic from a new study. Are we talking, Michelle, about an enhanced feedback effect here where more rain in the Arctic pushes more heating, resulting in more rain? Yeah, I, I would say that's very plausible because when we have a warmer atmosphere, it means that a lot more of the atmosphere can hold water vapor. 
And water vapour itself is actually a very potent greenhouse gas. So the fact that as we emit more CO2 and more methane, greenhouse gases are those that come from our consumption of fossil fuels, for one example. That itself contributes to a warmer atmosphere, which can therefore hold more of this water as a gas, as water vapour in the atmosphere. That in itself is a greenhouse gas, so that contributes to warming of the atmosphere. So therefore we get a more ability to hold water as a gas, so therefore continually to increase this. Over the Arctic as well, because we have less sea ice, we have a more open source of water across the entire Arctic Ocean, which therefore, with the warmer atmosphere, can lead to more evaporation. And therefore, all of these systems in place, as you said rightly, has this this feedback effect where we're getting a warmer atmosphere with more water vapour in it. Therefore, there's greater chance of precipitation. And because it is warmer, this precipitation will more likely fall as rain. So yeah, it has this positive feedback loop where the warmer it gets, the more rainfall it is possible. At Oxford, climate physicist Tim Palmer warns records from the Arctic are spotty. He suggests we need a lot more data to know what will happen in Alaska, northern Canada, or Siberia. Your paper acknowledges the problem. What do we need to increase confidence about what will happen in this huge part of the Earth? That's totally true, and I 100% agree with what you said, um, and it's something that I've, I've said very openly that The Arctic is a very interesting region to study, but one of the downsides of that is that we don't have a lot of, we don't have as much data of the Arctic as we do, for example, of the tropical regions, just because it is a more inhospitable region to try and get data from. So for me, one thing I would really love would be to have more weather stations and more ability to, to obtain data in those regions. And for me, I think one of the best things to do that would be to get local communities, local um, people who live within the Arctic, get them engaged, get them involved, because Realistically, for the next few years, a lot of the changes that are going to happen will be directly affecting people that live in the Arctic. So get them engaged and start putting out more weather stations on the Arctic land and more things like buoys across the Arctic Ocean. Basically, yeah, we just need a huge investment into observation stations across the entire Arctic. And I think it's very, very potent because, because the Arctic is changing more rapidly than most other regions of the planet sort of dictates that we should be putting more investment into trying to understand how this how it is changing so that we can get a better understanding and a better handle and we can better adapt our models so therefore they can we can we can make better projections into the future as well. So I totally agree that more needs to be done, more investment into those systems in the Arctic North is definitely necessary. But we had something, you know, the mosaic expedition that happened last year where they froze the ice into the Arctic sea ice and let it drift for a year. You know, more examples of that. Of course, that's a huge undertaking with a huge financial investment, but there's some amazing data coming out of that already. So I think more cruises, more um, campaigns like that would definitely be a welcome for the Arctic. The unimaginable changes in the Arctic are not isolated from the rest of the globe, as you say. Michelle, in your research work, you investigate large-scale teleconnections linking the Arctic to other parts of the world. Please take some time to tell us about those long-distance links. Yeah, exactly. So my previous research, I've always been interested in, well, my interest has always been what drives the Arctic. So I've been looking at tropical regions and how that affects and drives the Arctic climate. But as you rightly said, changes in the Arctic also do impact the mid-latitude. And there's been a lot of research into this in this past couple of years with some scientists saying and arguing that it can lead to like a waviness of the jet or it can lead to colder outbreaks in mid-latitudes. And there's still some debate around that for sure. But it it goes without saying that what happens in the Arctic doesn't really stay in the Arctic. And you get changes, for example, in like the polar vortex, which can 
make its way further into the mid latitudes and cause cause these cold air outbreaks for sure. This idea of the change in the jets um, is still a little debated, but if it is, if it is true or if it is a big impact, that again will bring with it you know the cold air that comes from the Arctic that will impact the mid latitudes. And there was even a study done a few years ago that across Europe back in twenty I want to say twenty eighteen. 2018 or 2019 that winter, there was huge snowfall events happened all across parts of Europe that probably wouldn't have happened if it hadn't have been changed in sea ice in the Arctic that brought down like this cold, moist air from the Arctic and made its way across Europe and brought this like huge freezing temperatures and big falls of snow all across Europe. So that's kind of another reason why the Arctic and changes in the Arctic are, are so potent for those that live in the middle, middle latitudes. There are plentiful signs of a previous hotter, wetter Arctic long, long ago. Crocodile bones were found on Canada's Ellesmere Island. Fossilized tree stumps in Alaska reveal a conifer along Arctic seas that dropped its needles in winter when there was no sunlight. It's amazing stuff. Could we be heading there again over the long, long term? That's hard to say. It's not impossible. As you said, we've had it before. Definitely it's not impossible whether we're going in that trajectory I, I couldn't honestly say. I think we're definitely going towards a much warmer environment. And with that, there will come, you know, a migration of species, of, of different animal and plant species further northwards. So, yeah, that, that is highly possible, whether it will happen. I'll say we'll have watched this space. <laughs> but it's a possibility, yes. You know, for a long time, alarmists were discouraged. But given your paper and a dozen others rolling in about large-scale changes at the polls, is it time to be alarmed? Are you? Yes, I would say. And this paper that I've done, I've always known that changes happen quite rapidly in the Arctic. I've spent the past almost 10 years working in this field, roughly. So I've always been very familiar with the fact that the Arctic's changing so rapidly. Um, I think what kind of astounded me in this is just how rapidly and how quickly the changes are being shown and are changing. The fact that we have transitions happening decades earlier than what was previously shown in previous models. And Michelle, what are the hot topics you and your colleagues are working on next? Well, we're still focused on this idea of change and precipitation and looking at the extreme events because while we're looking, we're very interested, and we've done the work now on the long-term means, these changes of, of extreme events, extreme warming, extreme rainfall, which is... What we have found across Canada this year already in BC, they've had their summer was extremely warm, and then of course they've had the floods there in this past couple of weeks. So we're trying to get a handle on these extreme events and trying to understand how they're changing and what the kind of you know contributing factors are. So it's going back to trying to understand what you know what's driving a lot of these changes. We know climate change is, is a key factor, but trying to understand the variability of it as well. So I think the more we know about the variability the better we can understand the trends, as it were, the better we can understand how this will change into the future. So we're focused quite heavily on that at the minute. From the University of Winnipeg, we've been speaking with Michelle McChrystal, lead author of the new study, New Climate Models Reveal Faster and Larger Increases in Arctic Precipitation Than Previously Projected. Find links to the news and science we just talked about in my show blog at ecoshock.org. Michelle, it was good to talk with you, and I'm sure our college radio listeners in Winnipeg will be happy to hear sort of one of their own. That's good. Thank you. I'm Alex Smith for Radio Ecoshock. I wish I had a magic wand of words to make us all feel better during this terrible time. At least we can keep searching for reality. Truth carries comfort. 
keep well, keep safe, keep love alive. I'm Alex Smith. Thank you for listening and caring about our world. Music